This recording is a production of the Conservative Anabaptist Education Committee. This presentation was recorded at Conservative Anabaptist School Board Institute 2018, held in Harrisonburg, Virginia, on March 2 and 3. Yes, good evening to each one here. Thank you, Joe, for those wonderful songs. And Peter, yes, for laying a foundation for our thinking this evening. It's been a rich day of content and fellowship and a kind of real privilege to be here with you this evening. The syndicated columnist George Will, in an editorial published in the Washington Post in July of 2016, wrote a report so Im- about a report so important in its findings that the administration of Lyndon B. Johnson released the report over the weekend of July 4 so that, so that the nation would not be paying attention to the report. The study referred to was called Equality of Educational Opportunity by a sociologist by the name of James Coleman. Historically, and currently, politicians, the teachers' unions, and the public has seen education as the way to solve the problems of the world, the method by which to accomplish a utopian picture of what education can do, and it's primarily funded through money and more money. In fact, the cultural consensus was and is that the best predictor of a school's success and performance was the amount of money spent on it. You increase financial input and academic outputs would increase proportionally. That was the thinking. That is the thinking. As the post-war baby boom moved through the public schools, almost everything improved. School buildings, teacher salaries, class sizes, per student expenditures, all except test measurements, the academic outcomes. Enter James Coleman, who collected data from the 3,000 schools and 600,000 primary and secondary school students. It was a very large study. And in his study, James Coleman found two basic things that the best predictor of a school's outcome was the quality of the children's families. And secondly, he said, he found that students' achievements are influenced by the social capital, the habits and the educational ambitions and things their classmates bring to school. And now I quote Coleman. One implication stands out above all that schools bring little influence to bear on a child's achievement that is independent of his background and general social context, and that this very lack of an independent effect means that the inequalities imposed on children by their home, neighborhood, and peer environment are carried along to become the inequalities with which they confront adult life at the end of school." End quote. In other words, the school's influence is not as great as the family influence. Coleman further documented in this study how schools are reflections of, rather than cures for, the failure of families to function as the primary transmitters of a culture. And this study, I believe, is something to teach our Christian schools. Allow me to state the obvious. Our Anabaptist schools are made up of students who come from families. The school is comprised of young people from real families, and it is a big deal. It matters. While money and finances are important and essential in the operation of our schools, throwing more money at the problems will not solve anything. Schools at its best always, and we heard that this afternoon, when it is serving the church. And you know what? The church is comprised of families too. 
Effective schools have churches and families on the same page. They have similar values, they share the same priorities. The strength of the school is directly proportionate to the strength of its families. Now, too often, the school is being asked to do its work in a vacuum. We're asked to do hard things that families are unable to do and accomplish, and we gladly do what we can. But I'm here to tell you that it's not that much different in our schools than the public schools. We can't just pay teachers more, which I'm all for, you might have guessed. But that's not the answer to problems in school. It maybe is a piece of the puzzle. But what kind of families do we have that are coming to our Christian schools? If it's true that the strength of the school is directly tied to the strength of the individual families that make up the school, then what should we consider together tonight? What matters? Now, I'm not assuming this will be exhaustive. In fact, I, I, I cut out half of my talk that I brought, and then I re-engineered it last night. Uh, there's too much. So I was given one hour, and so I'm going to roll. As the father of five children from the ages of 11 to 18, I want to remind us as parents of several things. That the years from conception to first grade are the most important years of a child's life. These are the foundation from which children live the rest of their lives. Now, the years from first grade to twelfth grade are very important as well as it solidifies the training that took place in the foundational years. The training and educating of our children begins at the age of zero. Research is very clear that the development of a child, not just physical development, begins in the womb. An unborn child hears his mother sing and talk. Think about the first baby in a family. During the pregnancy, you know, we read everything we could get our hands on about, about what this will be like and how to raise children and and we did everything we could to give this first baby the best chance possible. After the baby is born, we spend a tremendous amount of time changing diapers, cleaning up puke, feeding this child, staying up all night with sick children. And it's easy to lose sight of who this child is actually becoming. The care and nurture of a child certainly includes proper physical care. But this is only compacted by the, compounded by the fact that most times we have more than one child and everything that you feel with the first child is simply compounded with two, three, and four and on. Suddenly, life becomes, feels almost out of control. I remember the night about six weeks after our twin boys were born. It was sleep deprivation was just normal. I didn't know what it was anymore. You go to school and you teach all day, you come home exhausted, and, and then there's two babies there. And it takes more than one to take care of two. And I remember one night, my wife will tell you stories of me. And uh, I, I can laugh about it now, but it took a little while. Uh, she'll tell you stories of what it was like. You know, you fall into that first deep sleep, you finally get to bed at 11 o'clock, you know, later than you wanted to, but that was just the way it went. We had five children, seven and under, and it was a little hairy around our place. And, and I remember one night, it was one o'clock, that first deep sleep, precious deep sleep. Both babies needed to, feed, to be fed. So Kathy took the one baby in the bottle and she very generously, which she often did over the, over the, in, in the nighttime, she would bring me the baby to in bed, and then she would give me the bottle, and then I would try to connect the two. <laughs> now, this is extraordinarily difficult when you're in your first sleep at 1 a.m. And I remember trying to find, first of all, which end of the bottle. It wasn't working. 
And then when I finally found that, I couldn't find the place to put it in the baby. And I was kind of looked over and I said, Carol. I got, oh yeah. So I connected the two. I looked over and her baby has half of the bottle down already and mine's just started. Uh, so I found a pin beside the, you know, beside the, in, on the bedstand. I picked up the pin and I started poking holes in the nipple of the bottle because I wanted this to be over with. Now, I loved my boys, okay? But those are the days, remember? And life gets really, really big sometimes, and, and, and you become consumed almost with just the basics. But you know what? Babies grow up. Those babies were more than just a physical being who needed a bottle. Those babies had a spirit, soul, mind. I begin with a short scripture. We had a, a great scripture read earlier from Ephesians 6, 1 to 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and the mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The word nurture in the Greek is paideia, tutoring by education or training. By implication, it includes disciplinary correction as part of the training. Nurture refers to the environment in which a child is raised. Nurturing is to provide the kind of care that will promote healthy growth and development as a whole being. Now tonight, we want to look at nurturing. I'm making the assumption that parents want to do the best they can. That's true. But sometimes we need a reminder about how the home's influence has a direct bearing on the school. If you're a board member here tonight, I hope you're able to have discussions with your families about their homes. If you're a parent, please accept these seven elements of the home's influence that really matters in the life of the school. Accept this is from one beggar, maybe to others further along the path than I am. Parenting is hard work and I don't really feel like I know what I'm doing. I want to make one note before I begin with these seven elements, and that is for you parents, for administrators, principals, teachers, and that is that we cannot create a situation in which children in our school feel divided loyalties, where we are against parents somehow, where there are problems in homes and our homes have problems. I mean, mine does. does, maybe yours does, yours probably doesn't, mine does. But we need to be conscientious that we do not rip children away from their families and the loyalties that are there. That was given to them by God. We must also, as teachers, remember we don't fix young people and we don't save our young people. We also need to live out of our convictions and teach from a perspective that is genuine and is aligned with church leadership. And I will just say that in the problems I've confronted over the last 20 plus years of teaching, that church leadership has been one of the most wonderful allies to me in the classroom. I find that church leaders see needs, they understand the issues, they feel the weight of their responsibility, and they're very closely aligned to teaching staff, I've found. And so let's work with leadership. Let's work with the home. So I'm going to start with four that are rather simple. I'm going to go through this fairly rapidly to give more time and space to the final three that I'd like to talk about. I'm going to just, this is a reminder, and you know all of this. So we'll just do what Brother Edwin said. We just, we just need reminders. Prioritizing school. This is important in the life of the school. That families prioritize an education. Education is an important endeavor. And so we take schoolwork seriously. We don't just brush off homework too easily. Is there time in your family's economy to learn Bible memory? That often is done at home. Can you make it a family project? Prioritize what's going on. Make that a living part of your family life rather than seeing it as against what you want to do. Work with it. 
I think it's important in prioritizing school to get adequate rest. The weekends for our students, I just had a long discussion with my students in which I have personally have the belief that Mondays are the best day of the week. I know, I'm sorry. But I don't think it's right. I don't think the believer needs to live for the weekend. The world needs to, but we don't. We're built to work. I tell them, I said, you're built to work. You were created for this. Have at it. Six days, seventh day you rest. Yes, absolutely. And, and yet what happens is our children, our families are going, 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 going relentlessly. And they come to school dog tired. Mondays can be a drag if they haven't slept much that weekend. I'm just letting you know that's how it is when you're teaching. I teach seventh and eighth grade. And uh, I make Mondays the best day of the week. And there's ways to do that. But if there's no sleep, if they haven't been getting their rest, it's very difficult to do well with school. That is a direct translation into the school, what happens in your home. Thirdly, be at school. It's best if you have school to be at school. And I'll just tell you this, when I'm teaching a math lesson, it's hard to compete with the thought of students who have their peers on the beaches of Florida in February while we're doing quadratic equations. It's tough. It's hard for teachers, it's hard for students, it's hard for school culture. Be there. We have lost the ability to commit to one thing. We want to do all of it. So we say yes to the school when it's convenient. But we still need a week or two for vacation though. What does it mean? What do our children learn when we don't prioritize the things we have committed to? Think about that one for a good long while. Prioritize the school be at school functions, support the school with more than just money. Giving space and priority for school sends a critical message to your children. It matters what happens at home. Secondly, read often and much to your children. Children love stories, and children who love stories will tend to read stories. And children who, who read are far ahead, far ahead developmentally of their peers whenever they have read a lot through their growing up years. Sitting down with a child and reading to them is a gift that gives you huge return on your investment. Read good books that have stood the test of time, not just the Berenstain Bears, please. There's lots of good books. Reading from a variety of genres is good, important for children, but don't forget how shaping these stories are for your children. And then ask questions about the story. What happened? What will happen? Help your child engage with stories. You'd be surprised how big a difference it makes in the classroom when children are used to actually engaging with stories. You will help the school. A love for reading sets your child up for success, not only in school, but also in life. Thirdly, sing with your children. Generally speaking, I think many of us have not realized how much we have turned into consumers rather than producers in the arena of music. Music has become a primary place of consumerism for Anabaptists. I really think that's true. Now, it's a wonderful thing to have better and better uh, music available and singing groups who, who can aid our, our listening and worship. But an unintended consequence is that fewer and fewer families actually sing together. That's true. I'm checking it out with my, my first-time parents. I'm getting a wave of first-time, you know, first-grade, first-time and first-grade kind of parents. I'm asking questions. Do you sing together? Well, we listen to music a lot during the day. No, 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 that's not what I asked. Do you sing together? Music and singing is key to the whole development of a child. Interestingly enough, while this is not scientific in any way, the percentage of children who can hear and sing pitches correctly and actually sing together, sing well, when coming into first grade is decreasing. 
We have to work a lot harder in first grade than I can ever remember over the last five years. The fix is not some sort of magic. They still have the innate ability to sing. God gave it to us. But singing together as a family and hearing the mother of the home singing while working is a wonderful place to start. Where they hear a beautiful melody without anything else and not from the tape deck. Oh, that's old school. Not from CD. Oh, that's old school. MP3. Whatever it is. Not that. Churches can help by creating ample time for worship and song as maybe as well as offering music class to the adults in the congregation for those who don't have much background in music. I just think it's increasingly a way to minister the gospel to our world. Just this last Christmas, our church always does Christmas caroling, and right there in Guy's Mills, we go around and, and we sing to certain people. And Tom up the hill stays home every Sunday night in December with his front porch light on to make sure he's there when we come. And Janet, every time she sees me, says, I beg you, make a CD of you. You all are so amazing. It's just the people happen to live in Guy's Mills. We're not very amazing. In fact, we're pretty crummy. We have fun and we enjoy it. And she's begging for a CD. Larry lost his wife a year and a half ago, and he lives about three quarter mile down the road from us. And we went to sing for him. I didn't know what, he, what it'd be like for him because it's been tough. And he stood there. He's a man who shows no emotion, needs no help from anybody. And that night, he's standing there unapologetically, tears streaming down his cheeks. The opportunity for ministry and music is phenomenal for our people. It is still a loved part of us. But if the family doesn't sing, it's very difficult for the school to sing. Make your home a place of learning. Do you know something? Children will spend the rest of their life learning. It's a lifelong pursuit. This human quality of learning is essential to growing in Christ, to doing even well vocationally and being a steward of who God created us to be. Teach your children to count when preparing a meal. Tell them what you're doing. When driving, ask your children what animals they see, what sound they make, and count the signs beside the road. If I have a little more time, I would have read the Shema, where we teach in Deuteronomy 6, while we're sitting and while we're walking, and everywhere we go. Learning, a place of learning. Learning new things should be breathtaking. I love learning from my children things I didn't know before. Celebrate learning, offer new things for your children to learn. Make learning a habit and a lifestyle. It will matter in your school, I can assure you. I can tell you who the parents are who say, oh, algebra, my grandpa died of that. It's in a vain attempt to be funny or something. And it, it's sort of, kind of, but, but it kind of, it kind of bothers me because I like teaching algebra even. And my grandpa actually didn't die of that, neither did theirs. But you see, the idea of learning new things should captivate us because we have the riches of the treasure of Jesus' words and the Bible, and there's so much to learn. And we're constantly learning and growing. Make all of life learning about who God is and who we are. I'd like to turn now toward, that was the warm-up. I'd like to talk about three things that I'm really observing. And I feel it's impacted me. That's my confession. And I want to preface these these last three by saying that, and it's been referred to, whether or not we want to admit it, our parenting styles have changed. Now, this is not, I mean, one of the, one of the really beautiful things that's happened is that 
we have been raised with more relationship, I think, more concern for relationship with our children. We've been raised that way ourselves, which is why my generation and younger is doing really well with that. But there is more to this than just relationship. And so we need to be careful. My uncle says, and I think of this often, and I quote it often too, I think, for every one mile of road, there are two miles of ditches. And so we can veer off into a very disciplinary, hardline kind of parent. And we can go off into the squishy, feel good, let's all just have a great time as a family and just love each other and bring grace. Or we could try to bring the two together. We have a feel-good culture, and the culture is really bearing in on us, brothers and sisters. And so, fifthly, allow your children to fail. Students today seem unable to fail. They need to feel special. They need to believe they're winners. And so as parents, we assume this means we can't let them fail. Parents increasingly are concerned their children feel good enough about themselves. Now, it is true that children need a correct self-view. But good self-esteem develops when caring adults identify a child's strength, but also allows them the satisfaction that comes from trying and failing. Tim Elmore talks about it like this. As parents, we've given them lots of possessions, but not much perspective. As teachers, we've given them plenty of schools, but not plenty of skills. As employers, we've mentored them in profit and loss, but haven't shown them how to profit from loss. This shift appears to have started more than 30 years ago with the Tylenol scare in 1982. Now, that's not scientific, but remember the bottles of, of Tylenol were poisoned, and for a while there, you didn't want to buy a bottle of Tylenol because you didn't know who put poison in there. They, they, they took the Tylenol off the shelves in drugstores and stores all over. It was a really big deal back in the day. And it was in the years following this incident as though we became hyper-aware of our children. And in many ways, this is good. Our culture does not celebrate children, it celebrates pets. So I'm all for celebrating children. However, follow what happened. By the 1990s, we had determined to boost self-esteem and ensure that, that children grew up confident and comfortable in a very uncertain world. Public, school, public schools initiated many self-esteem programs, and I remember those. We installed diaper changing stations in public restrooms. Baby on board signs in minivans led to bumper stickers in the 2000s that read, my kid is a super kid, or my kid made the honor roll. Now that is a shift. And then next we decided to give our children a head start in everything they did. We thought that good parenting meant we should use the baby Einstein CDs or baby Mozart with our young children, that that would maybe do it. Currently, there is tremendous pressure on our schools to admit children below the age of our policy. A tremendous pressure. My child is so developed, so smart. He's so advanced for his age. You don't know how often I hear, he's so advanced for his age. Well, moms and dads, I'm glad you're proud of your children. I'm proud of mine too. But it doesn't mean I have an Einstein on my hands. Okay, it doesn't mean that, that it's right for the child to be pulled from the home at the age of five. We don't even have a kindergarten. I want children home with mom. And we use CLE kindergarten with moms at home. That's how you get kindergarten. Now, I have no problem with the kindergarten if that's what your community decides. But I'm telling you, moms and their children is critical to the development of our families. Now, granted, there are cases in which a child should be admitted, but not a year goes by in my school anymore in which there is an exception sought. And there's a multitude of reasons, some you'd probably chuckle at. 
but it happens. We don't just have kindergarten anymore in our culture, we have K-5, K-4, K-3. That's a shift, folks. That's a shift. We want to give our children an advantage, an edge on their peers, because after all, they're so special. <clears throat> now, I'm for promoting a proper self-view. I'm for keeping children safe. By the way, in other place, playgrounds, they're dangerous. Don't let children up on equipment. They might hurt themselves. This is all part of don't let your child fail, fall, hurt themselves. I'm all for keeping children safe. I'm all for providing a good start in life for children. But have we given our children a false sense of security, a false sense of reality about how life really works? We seem to have highly confident children, but that doesn't mean they're well prepared for life. Many children have never really experienced setbacks. In the past, when a student got in trouble or failed a class, parents reinforced the teacher's grade and insisted their children study harder, and they put things in place to make sure that things would turn around. You know what happens today, including in our Anabaptist schools? Why did, why did he get a D? It was C work. I saw it. It was C work or B. It's better than I could have done in school. What's a parent communicating when you go to the teacher, go to bat for your child because they failed? Is it? I'll leave it. Today, parents often side with their children, and the teacher is the one that gets in trouble. I'm speaking very bluntly and straight. Is that okay? Hovering parents have become far more normal than just 10 years ago. I used to have to deal with one or two of those, you know, every school you know, where you, you're, you're hovering. We call them helicopter parents in the field of education. And they're just right there. They're right around. And they're making sure everything's okay. Very and we love the involvement, but it, they are quick to jump on whatever's not quite fair or right. I deal, that's more normal than it used to be. It's not one or two anymore. You see, children learn that they can get out of the messes they make of life because the adults around me will make excuses and not let me fail. What happens when a child forgets their lunch? And it's so hard for me, I get this. This morning, I'll give you an example. This morning we had snow in Guy's Mills, quite a lot of it, and high winds. We had a two-hour delay. And for a little side income, I and the boys shovel the sidewalks to the local Guy's Mills post office. And Kathy called me, or we, I got the call this morning at 5 from our district. We go with the district, there's some busing and things that happen, so we just go with whatever district does. And, and Pat had called me in two-hour delay, and I said, okay. And so I put, the, put it on the hotline, and then Kathy texted me. And I thought about it, too. She said, what do I do with the post office? I said, we'll get the boys up. But they could sleep in, she said. And I know. You see the mom's heart? I said, well, let's allow them to have experience the hard things in life. And so all the boys got up, and they went to the post office, and we went to the neighbors and dug them out and, uh, as well. And, and it helped to be studying for this. But you see how quickly we want to just make it easy, right? Oh, you know, it's just bad if they have to get, finally have a two-hour delay, finally. And we make them get up at 6.30 in the morning. And school doesn't start till 10.35. And it's good for them. Moms and dads, it's easy to make our children into our trophies. Our children are seen as reflections of our own success. Our child is a winner, so we look better. And as teachers, we can be guilty of some of the same things. There are now public school districts who are not using red ink to grade papers because it seems too harsh for the students and causes them undue stress, I quote. But how does life actually work? None of us wants to see discouraged children. I'm a teddy bear when it comes to children. I love children. But not failing is not a solution. 
Maybe it's the best motivation to prepare them for the reality of life. How many of you experience failure in your adult life and need to find ways, make bad decisions and poor choices in business and whatever all and decide not to ask for directions and then 400 miles away, you know, and you could have stopped and asked before you got that lost. We do these kinds of, well, not quite that, but we do these kinds of things. What young people need is adults who believe in children and then provide the accountability and infrastructure as they mature. The Professional Association of Teachers in England suggested that the thought of failure was damaging to students. Liz Beatty called on the association to delete the word fail from the educational vocabulary and to be replaced with the concept of deferred success. <laughs> Fortunately, the UK Education Secretary responded with this. For that particular proposal, I think, I give them a zero out of 10. It's really important for young people to grow up with the ability to get on and achieve, but also to find out what failure is. When young people grow up and enter the adult world, they have to deal with success and failure, and education is about creating well-rounded young people who can deal with these sorts of situations. Now, that's common sense. As parents, we tend to see children as fragile, don't we? Fragile. Sense of which that's true. So we talk and talk with them about safe driving or being safe with guns or whatever, but they don't learn common sense just by watching and listening to others talk about it. Children learn by experiencing firsthand. So yes, we do our part, but all the talk in the world does not necessarily create what we're hoping for. They need to take risks and then be supported if they fail. One of the reasons that we have young people that are not adults until they are 25 is because we have taken away the difficult and made it easy for them when they're younger. This keeps young people in prolonged adolescence. Homes that allow children to fail and learn from their mistakes give their children a real gift. Just suppose if your child forgot their lunch, you didn't bring it to school actually, let them go hungry. They won't forget their lunch very often. Billy was a boy with a home in which his parents let him fail. He was a social outsider. He was not well connected to others in school, all the way through school. He even went to college and not connected there either. His parents worried so much about his social awkwardness in school and his tendency to withdraw, but they continued to encourage him to explore all kinds of ideas to find out what he might do with his life after high school. They made it okay to fail, and fail he did. But we also benefit immensely from Bill Gates following his success after all those failures. Sixth, create a culture of service rather than happiness. Who doesn't want their child to be happy? We have five children and I want them to be happy children and offer them the best life possible. But happiness is not the goal. Happiness is a byproduct of wise choices, not a goal to be pursued. Happiness is a byproduct of doing what is right and adding value to others. True satisfaction comes from serving others, not themselves. Tim Elmore again, notes there are several common markers of how parents led their children when you look at past cultures of America, Europe, and Asia. And he says, here's how it used to be. They led by principles. Beliefs determined their leadership. They based their leadership on their belief that it was clearly right and wrong behavior. They believed that discipline was the first trait a child must learn. That their children routinely interacted with adults at every stage of life. They built a desire in the children's teen years to become adults, and their greatest hope was for their children to become adults who contributed to society. This is rare in our broader culture today. It is also affecting our own people. What has happened, and why have we changed? Now, Tim Elmore comes back with this, and he says, as parents, want the, we want the approval of our young people. 
They represent what is cool and relevant, and we adults desperately want it too. Ouch. As parents, we have few or no guiding principles. Many of today's parents were raised when principled living was fading or old-fashioned, so we're just making it up as we go. As parents, we feel messed up ourselves. So we believe we have no moral authority to ask our children to do what's right and to put down a line. We feel like we have to say, well, do as I say, not as I do. If he's right, we have to reevaluate our parenting. We all want happiness, but more and more we believe that material wealth, career goals, bigger houses, better cars, bigger paychecks, you know, the American dream. That will bring us happiness. Even secular research is clear that this only brings temporary happiness. Lottery winners and people who are paralyzed reportedly have similar levels of happiness one year after their life-changing event. Happiness is largely dependent on how we react to or perceive to events around us. When Todd was in second grade, his class couldn't have, couldn't have a Valentine's Day party because they were behind in their schoolwork. So Todd wanted to exchange Valentine cards with his friends anyway, not Todd was an outcast. And his mother knew he probably wouldn't get any cards in return, none. Fearing that he would be disappointed, his mom encouraged him to just prepare a, a few cards and secretly wished he would just forget it all. Todd insisted on making a card for every single student in his class. At the end of the day, Todd's mother watched him walk up the driveway from the bus stop. As he entered the door, he was talking to himself, not one, not one, not one. She heard him whisper. Her worst fears had been realized. Todd had gotten not one card. So she asked him about his day, braced herself, and was prepared to comfort her little boy. And Todd said, Mom, today was great. I didn't forget one classmate. I gave a card to every one of my friends. Happiness is a matter of perspective. Create a culture of service rather than happiness, rather than feel good kinds of things. Parents, teachers, and boards fear that unhappy children are a poor reflection on them. So the adults in their lives shelter children, reward them quickly, reward them easily, reward them repeatedly. And young people begin believing that they are amazing. The problem is that children late in adolescence begin to figure out they aren't as great as they thought they were. Too many are told they were excellent and wonderful without working hard. They begin to realize the praise is ringing hollow. That it, there's other people better at this than me. And they've never confronted that before. And the first real failure for too many people is experienced between the ages of 17 and 24. I'd like to go back to Tim Elmore. He's done a lot of work on some of these issues. In his book, Artificial Maturity, Helping Kids Meet the Challenge of Becoming Authentic Adults, he writes that we must communicate two sets of messages to children during the first 20 years of their life. And often only one set of messages gets through, the childhood messages. There's childhood messages and adolescent messages. And so I want to show you what he has to say there. Childhood messages in the first zero to ten years, they should be, you are loved, you are unique, you have gifts, you are safe, and you are valuable. From the ages of 11 to 20, the messages should be, life is difficult, you are not in control. You are not that important. You are going to die. Your life is not about you. Does that seem harsh? Doesn't it? And when you stop and reflect on this pair, if they begin with the childhood messages, and then we remind them of the reality of their lives, you will not be here forever. (laughs) You aren't entirely safe. Someday we're all going to die. They need to hear other messages. Instead, most children hear from zero to 20 childhood messages. And we keep them from becoming truly 
happy, you could say. We don't owe our children happiness. We owe them perspective. We prepare them to be disciplined adults who understand what real fulfillment looks like. We create an environment in which children strive for the approval of their parents rather than parents seeking the approval of their children. I had a parent recently tell me, well, now that my son's 13, I guess I have to make all his own decisions. I had to pick my job off the floor, put it back in place. Really? 13? No, please. You see, parents want the approval of their children. I do too. I like to be liked, right? But is that creating, what kind of generation does that create? What this means is that children need to practice, do hard things over and over until they're really good at something. That's what you do. How did you get to be that great a mason and a carpenter? and a businessman, and a plumber, and a pie maker. How? Practice. That's real life. But children don't like over and over practice. Did you know that? They don't really like it. They need to hear the word no. Children don't need another buddy. They need dads, and they need moms. They need to learn to wait. Children don't want to delay gratification. They want it now. They need to learn to wait. They need to learn to serve. Unlike other cultures in history, we've made the pursuit of happiness a part of the American tradition. It's in the Declaration of Independence, but here's why. Because service was so embedded into the society at the time. And so to have happiness while you're serving is kind of a new idea. Today, the ultimate end is happiness. And service has been disconnected from it. And so we breed consumers more than we do contributors, which produces dissatisfied children. They aren't creating. They're waiting to become more happy. When we try to raise children who are happy and who can't fail, we raise up a generation that has an entitlement mentality. And it's really hard in school, brothers and sisters, when they're entitled. I deserve this. I need more. I don't have enough. You can't do this to me. What about all of my friends? No one else has to do this. I should be able to. And I want to say sometimes, sweetheart, the real world works this way. And it's not the way you think it does. And so we're going to do it this way. Even if all your friends say it's different. And by the way, Rarely is that true. That's a secret, okay? I can't tell you how many times I've asked my children, well, does everybody, how about, and I'll start naming names. How about, uh, you know, because they're students. I know these people. So how about uh, Jamin? How about Krista? How about, and I give them, well, no, no, no. Oh, so not everyone actually is. Oh, well, Dad, almost. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Children have things to learn. Let's create an environment at home in which they learn to serve. And finally, and I will need to move here. Severely limit screen time. And I like to spend the rest of my time right here. I only have about eight minutes if I keep my one hour. So I'm going to try to roll. There are many benefits to technology, and I know we're hearing so much about it. It feels worn out, but you know, we haven't talked a lot about it in terms of parenting, maybe, and some of the science of it, and I like to talk about that. We have instant access to wealth of information. There's many avenues for social interaction. There's instant worldwide communication. Learning opportunities abound. The docforlearning.org was born. What's not to like? There's disadvantages. We are continuously plugged in to assortment of digital gadgets that demand attention. Life used to be more boring, so children would play ball 
ride bikes, explore the world, climb trees. The fun is now indoors, so just sit down and enjoy it. Truthfully, we don't even know all the disadvantages. The children in our churches will be the first children raised in an unplugged environment with the portability of laptops and tablets and smartphones, and the truth is it's having an effect right now. The changes in technology are so rapid, they're literally outstripping the human brain's ability to adapt. Gary Small says, and I quote, the current explosion of digital technology not only is changing the way we live and communicate, but is rapidly and profoundly altering our brains, physically. Daily exposure to high technology, computers, smartphones, video games, search engines like Google, stimulates brain cell alterations. Our brains are evolving right now at speeds never seen before. End of quote. A college pastor has this to say. I see young people losing the interpersonal skills it takes to function in relationships, in a family, and in the church. My concern is how this lack of communication will affect their marriages and the way they parent. The digitally dependent generation is not able to take in a lot of information and get deep. They aren't reading books, and it's changing their learning style. I agree with that. They have a high need for distraction, so my teaching style has to adapt. As Andy Stanley has said, I have to teach less for more. I believe that parents should not live in a cocoon. Don't disengage, but get involved in their child's digital life. I believe the most damaging effect of the digital world to be the parent's own dependence on digital media because it will become their child's dependence. End of quote. The digital world seems to be breaking down a sense of unity as families. Did you realize that recent research confirms that sleep deprivation in children can cause a pseudo form of ADD? <clears throat> Often the result of social media and connectedness through the night. There are young people among us binge watching YouTube through the night. Among our people. It's becoming difficult for us in the schools to know what learning disabilities are intrinsic and what has been created through their environment, through the digital world of our students. Last year, there were 2.1 billion smartphone users. By 2019, 2.5 billion users. In 2011, the Barna Research Group showed us showed that many of us are spending as much as eight hours per day in the digital world. Barna found this, that parents were just as dependent on technology as their teens. Shall I say that again? We need to take a close look at some of this. Barna found that most family members feel that technology has been a positive influence in their families and welcome technology and media with open arms. Barna found that few adults or youth take substantial breaks from technology. This confirms that we're at the very least dependent and likely addicted. Only 10% of parents and 6% of teens say they try to take one day a week off from digital usage. We've, we know what it means to fast from food. Have we considered fasting from the digital world? Our families, my question is, are families in control of technology or being controlled by it? The medical field has research that says the symptoms of being addicted to technology can include. The medical field is saying, here's how you can tell if you're addicted to technology. Compulsive checking of messages. Frequent changing of Facebook status and uploading of selfies. Social withdrawal. Loss of interest in activities that don't involve a computer, phone, or gadget. Feelings of restlessness when unable to go online, like when your Wi-Fi or your internet goes down? What do we do, right? We are more socially connected than ever before, but more disconnected than ever. Our brains are literally changing. A baby's brain contains 100 billion neurons or brain cells, which is equivalent to the number of stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Now, it produces these neurons before birth and then continues after birth to grow connections to these neurons. During the first years of life, the brain continues to undergo a series of changes. With very little help, a child miraculously learns how to speak a language. 
By the time a child has reached teen years, there are more neurons in the brain than needed. So the brain starts a pruning process to eliminate connections that are seldom or never used. Now, Gary Small, a researcher from UCLA, says the neural circuits, I'll let you read this with me, the neural circuits that control the more traditional learning methods are neglected and gradually diminished. The pathways for human interaction and communication weaken as customary one-on-one people skills atrophy. The pleasure center of your brain is the, called the nucleus accumbens. You have one of those. If you don't, I'm really sorry. But, but I think you all do. It's the part of the brain that controls every experience of pleasure. A good meal, a great book, holding the hand of your wife, checking off a checklist after a job is completed. This part of your brain rewards certain behaviors which are good, so you repeat them. But if your pleasure system is overused, the experience of pleasure is overused, the experience of pleasure is diminished, and you are driven to seek a higher level of stimulation. Put simply, overloading the pleasure system gradually raises the bars so you have to increase the level of stimulation to maintain the pleasure, and it's the basic cause of all addictions. Now, dopamine is the neurotransmitter, the chemical messenger that carries the signal to your pleasure center from different parts of the brain. As you go for more and more pleasure, you push the dopamine level higher and higher. It's called dopamine flooding. Gambling, nicotine, and alcohol addictions all begin there. Okay? The same thing that causes a casual drink to turn into alcoholism is biologically exactly, did you hear me? Biologically exactly the same as most internet behaviors such as Facebooking or video gaming. That little ding or vibrate or whatever your phone says to you that communicates to the pleasure center of your brain, which is where it goes, it interacts with your brain the same way gambling, nicotine, and alcohol interact with that part of your brain. I know, school teachers got to get kind of technical sometimes or something. But I want us to realize but we, we're, it's changing us, literally. Physically, it's changing us. Our lives are being changed dramatically and very quietly. And I truly believe that we have a crisis that's really difficult to address. School needs to do what it can, but homes are so important here, folks. Screens have become the new babysitter and have replaced good parenting in too many cases. Research is showing the devastating effects of screen time on young children. There are many two-year-olds who know their way around a smartphone very well. Remember, it's rewiring them. I can't help but notice the high number of special needs coming into school. It's doubled in cases I'm familiar with and tripled in some cases. Screen time and the change in our parenting styles has created huge learning issues for our children. Are we going to be concerned enough to change our habits and lifestyles to give the best possible chance to our children? How much are you willing to sacrifice for the good of your family? And it's hard. Our lives revolve around these things anymore. But what are we willing to do? Just let me offer quickly several ideas. I encourage you to talk with your children about digital media, but that's not enough. They are talked to a lot. You gotta act. You have to actually create some lines. If you don't have software accountability on every device, I consider that parental malpractice. We commit parental malpractice of the worst if we do not have accountability on devices in our homes. For $10 a month, 
you can do this. I am surprised at the high number of people that I know. Yeah, I got a new phone, just never got that taken care of for my son. Just got, yeah, I got a new phone from, but yeah, I don't think there is any filter. I, there's not, folks, it's, it's a big deal. Know what's going on. Ask questions. Do it in relationships. It's not about just, here's the hammer, pow. It's about, I love you enough to know what's going on. Let's keep talking about what's going on. And my daily summary, my daily report from each of my children will keep us accountable. And it gives us a great way to talk about things. I've been blessed over and over. Create, so create parameters for usage. No phones in the bedroom. It's not necessary. Oh, it's just charging, Mom. Well, it can charge out in the kitchen, too. We have outlets there, too. Create parameters. No technology during supper or after such and such a time. Is Snapchat acceptable? Do your children need to ask you before downloading apps? Do you have time limits for YouTube? Reality TV is now in your pocket. The banal and perverse is changing our view of what being a lover of God means. Parents personally limit time and usage. We need to be able to say no, even if your child throws a fit or says that everyone else watches it or everyone else has Snapchat, so I don't know how to talk to anybody because I don't have Snapchat. Now, I'm not making Snapchat the ultimate ogre, but folks, it's complicated. Those four friends use Snapchat. They use WhatsApp. This one used Messenger and that. What's the parent supposed to do? Draw lines. Create parameters. Even if it's not perfect, it's at least a parameter. I see too much unfettered access to anything that they want. Teach your children not to multitask. Yes. Children don't do well listening to music, doing homework, talking on their phone, and watching a video all at the same time. They don't do well. Multitasking is proven to be very damaging to the ability to focus and learn. In schools, we need to figure out how to differentiate between the real issues of ADD. I talked about that. And the pseudo form of ADD that comes directly from multitasking. There's a sleep-deprived kind, and there is the, there's the kind that comes from multitasking. Pills aren't the answer to this kind of ADD. Single tasking is. Help our children focus in on one thing at a time. Churches and school boards need discussions about these things. What do we believe? And as parents, let's learn one word. We must learn to say no. The number one reason some of our children struggle in this area is because dad can't say no and actually mean no. That's old-fashioned. I'm sorry. I'm becoming more old-fashioned the older I get, I think. Huh, that's odd. <laughs> Look, folks, I'm glad we're in a relationship. I encourage it. But let's see the dangers of some of this. We are in uncharted territory. And yet, we are not careful enough. I'm not careful enough. Our children will not be deprived if we don't give them everything they want. They will benefit greatly if we take the big picture and limit screen time. So I end with this. The cultural forces vying for our children's allegiances and loves are great. It's imperative that we collectively, schools, churches, families, we mobilize resources to invest in the character of our children. In a world that sacrifices its youth on the altars of convenience and the happiness of us as parents, we have an opportunity to offer a compelling contrast. Flannery O'Connor said, and I quote, push back against the age as hard as it pushes against you. 
What people don't realize is how much religion costs. They think faith is a big electric blanket when of course it is the cross. Rod Dreher said, and I quote, to raise children who become adults with the moral strength to resist the defilements of the age requires an extraordinary degree of sacrifice from parents. And even then there are not guarantees, but what choice do we have to surrender our children's hearts and minds? End of quote. We spend time talking about Generation Y or IY or Generation Z. We have great concern about what's happening in the culture and the subculture of our Anabaptist churches. But I believe we are changing far more rapidly than we realize. We have not yet seen the fruit of the rising generation. We, my generation, many of you, we have created this generation. Let's not go blame them. This is about us. We are responsible. Rather than only decrying what has happened to our culture and subculture, can we become a part of the solution which we begin to pay fresh attention to who we are becoming? Schools can become a very real part of the solution in training young people and shaping the loves and desires of them when in tandem with our families and churches. But the practices, of, of our, the practices of our families' lives, how they respond to life, what they prioritize, who we become as a family unit will ultimately shape our schools. Nurturing children starts early. And as parents, let's be vigilant to take on the responsibility of raising precious children that God has given to us so graciously. May God help us to raise the next generation of warriors through careful attention to our children in the culture and the times that we live in. This recording and many others are available through Christian Learning Resource, the campus bookstore at Faith Builders. Order online at www.christianlearning.org or call 877-222-4769.